Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Tweaked Audio. Are you tweaking? You tweaking, dude? Tweaked Audio. It's a purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com, and when you do that, enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. You get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com when you enter that promo code, tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio. <laughs> These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. Everybody, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles. It's uh, Tuesday night. This show goes live mere hours from now. And I have a great guest for you. Nicole Dennis-Ben is on the program today. Her debut novel, Here Comes the Sun, is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It's available now from Live Right Press. If you are not familiar with the NervousBreakdown.com, it is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own book club. You can sign up for that over at The Nervous Breakdown. Get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Uh, I then interview all the book club authors on this program, and you can hear those. You can read the book. It's an enriching cultural experience. I recommend it. So it's been uh, very busy for me work-wise in a very good way over the past six weeks. I've been trying to finish this novel that I've been working on for uh, too long, and I'm getting close to the end. I feel like I have a month left. It's hard to you know put an exact number on it, but I feel like I'm getting to where it, it's about a month. I thought I was in the last chapter, but it looks like I'm going to split it into two. 
I think I have about five to 7,000 words left. I think I can write that in a month. I work very slowly. I don't rush through and then go back and edit. I sit there and try to get it right the first time. It's a very tedious process. I don't know if it's the right thing to do. It's just how I do it. But uh, it's good. It's good. It's a good place to be. You know, this uh, this deep into a book, you sort of have mastery over the world. You know, over the world of the book, or hopefully you do. You know where you're going. You know where you are. I know exactly. You know, I know. I know how this thing ends, right down to the last line. I know exactly to where I am writing. I know my destination. And yet, uh, I have this you know, this really strong sense of anxiety. Or not anxiety, or just yeah, I guess anxiety. I'm anxious. I, I want it to be done. I'm excited. I want it. Uh, I want it out. But I can only work on the book so many hours a week, so many hours a day. And so I'll do that work. I'll have my little pocket of time, and then uh, I'll kind of run out of juice, or I'll just run out of time, and then I'll have to wait until the next day. And that waiting is bothering me. I don't even like the weekend. <laughs> In fact, I hate the weekend. When I'm in a mode like this, I just want to work every day. But I feel an obligation to like, you know, take some time off on the weekend for my family. Probably healthy. But I just want to keep working. Just get it done. I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining where I'm at. It's also weird because I really like the book at this stage. And I'm the only one who's ever looked at it. So I don't know what I have. So it's like my head is playing tricks on, you know, on itself. I'm sitting there thinking like, God, this is good. I think this is the best I've ever done. And then it's also, well, I don't know. I'm the only one who's looked at this. I'm right up close to it. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe somebody else is going to read this and be like, this is a fucking mess. (laughs) I don't know. Someone else is going to read it soon. Got to figure out who that person's going to be. Like maybe my wife, but I kind of want her to read it when it's done, done. You know, I don't know what, I don't want her to read early drafts. I want somebody I don't know to read it. I don't know if that makes any sense. I want somebody I don't know, but who I can trust, you know, has a, has the right brain for it and the right, you know, critical eye. I need a cold read from a smart stranger. That's what I desire. So I'm hoping to have the book done by October. I'll probably print out a copy, hand edit it, and then have, uh, you know, a stranger read it, implement those edits, whatever they happen to be, and then send it to my agent. That'll probably be November if I stay on track in the best possible case scenario. Hopefully, you know, hopefully I can get it done to where we can take it out to market by the end of this year. But if not, then early 2017. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Nicole Dennis-Ben. She did finish her book and uh, published it. Live Right published it. It's called Here Comes the Sun, and uh, it has been earning rave reviews and is a terrific novel. Very pleased to be spotlighting it in the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Here she is, folks. This is Nicole Dennis-Ben, and her novel is called Here Comes the Sun. You know, I could not have written that book had I stayed in Jamaica. You know, I felt like I was just too involved. I was just too close to home to write a book like that. So, of course, it took me coming here to the United States, living here in Brooklyn, in my apartment um, that I share with my wife, and, you know, really flushing out some some issues or some thoughts that I've had since day one, you know, being born and raised there. And so I feel, I feel like being away from it, I had this analytical lens. I was able to, you know, tune my creativity and actually just go ahead full force with this novel. That took me really five years um, to write it. It gave you clarity. It did. Okay. And so what were, the, what were some of the issues? I mean, you know, did you have a happy childhood growing up there? Was it troubled or was it both? Yeah, I, had, I really had a happy childhood. You know, my parents ensured that we had a really great um, sheltered home. You know, I grew up in this working class neighborhood, Vineyard Town, Kingston. And to be honest with you, you know, we grew up playing around in the yards. We had trees, all these things. But I was not aware of the differences on the island until I got the scholarship to go to this elite high school. And that's, that was when I became more aware of the classism in the country. You know, that, um, that certain classes. So I was with, um, going to school with girls who, you know, they were the, the daughters of like established um, professionals. And so looking around, I felt isolated as this working class girl going into that world. Well, you know, it's, you know, fu and it's funny that you say that because, you know, I, um, in my experience of class, it wasn't until I had like real immediate uh, exposure that it registered with me what the differences in class uh, might mean. I was sort of, right. I, I had sort of a sheltered uh, childhood, but yet I had exposure to TV and the movies. It's not like I was completely sheltered. I had some idea of differences out there, but what is, what is it about actually being right there uh, in a first person way, you know, facing it that somehow makes it sink in? It was more like, um, who the ha like have and the have not. So one example, um, I remember very clearly was bringing a friend home um, and, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ashamed of that at first. And I remember her saying to me, oh, you have no computers here. And I was like, oh, of course not. I don't have a computer. So what? And she's like, wow, that's really like, you know, backwards. <laughs> and that was, that struck me because I'm like, okay. So in her eyes, me not having a computer at home was something that, you know, was astounding. And in my eyes, it was like, okay, this is just, it's just normal. You know, and that was my first aware awakening. 
and then, in that sense. And and what and like how did you handle it? I mean, did you did it make you uh, closed off? Did it make you self conscious? Did you lose confidence? It did. Yes, I became very self conscious. I did not invite anybody else over to the house, you know. And you know, my mother is. I mean, she's she's a very private person. She has always been a very private person. And, you know, she would say to me, well, you know, those girls that are going to that school, you know, they're of a different world. So really, she sat me down and she beca- she actually, t- um, you know, discussed the differences. And that was when I became, um, I think, more insecure, I think, you know, because at school on a Monday morning, I w- I'm not coming back talking about my trips to Miami to shop, you know, which a lot of those girls did on weekends, given that Jamaica is just like a stone throw away. And, um, you know, they went our way, they shopped. And so for me, it was more like going to Portmore Mall or Tropical Plaza or some, um, you know, something local. You know, so it was a diff- diff- different worlds for sure. So, and how did you wind up at this elite school? I, um, so really studying. In that 10 years old, we take this, um, this exam called the Common Entrance Exam. Um, now it's called the GSAT. And at 10, you know, you're placed in these classes and you have to really study hard. And, you know, it's multiple choice. It's mathematics. It's English language. And you have to get a, a perfect score to get into these high schools, those type of high schools that the government um, deem as um, prominent. So for me, it was St. Andrew High School for girls. You know, for some it's Immaculate, for some it's Campion. Like these are just the, 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 we call them the name brand schools. You know, and getting into these schools kind of establish your destiny because you know you're going to be um, funneled into the college system. You know, some of us actually go abroad for college. Some go to University of the West Indies or U- University of Technology. Um, and those who do not pass to these schools um, end up going into vocational schools. So really, your destiny is determined for you since then. At age 10. Right. No, no pressure. Oh, my God. A lot of students end up committing suicide when they find out that they don't pass that exam. Well, that's the thing about it, though. You know, I mean, it's like there's limited opportunity in um, Jamaica generally. And then there's also not much mobility. I mean, like you're saying, right. your, your, your fate is sort of sealed at age 10. So, I mean, that exactly. creates a, a pressure cooker for kids. That doesn't seem right. Exactly. Yeah, it was really hard. It was really hard. And that's something I don't even I didn't even think I came here, you know, because in Jamaica, all my, my only thoughts were passing those exams, making sure that I'm studying hard so that I get to where I want to go to, you know, so because I at the time, um, you know, those yes, I was growing up in Benear Town at the time, I still wanted to rise above that, you know, because what my parents would do, they'll drive us up to the hills, they'll drive us to Beverly Hills. These are very, um, very um, wealthy neighborhoods in in Kingston, Beverly wait, Hills, Cherry wait, Gardens. Wait, there's a Beverly Hills in Jamaica. There is a Beverly Hills, yes. And it's you a, have mansions. No way. Right. So wait, what? When was this formed? Was it? Does this predate the California version, or is? This... Oh my gosh, I think it was. Um, well, Jamaica is only 54 years old, okay, so I'm guessing yeah. it's, it's modeled off of that concept. Okay. Yeah, but a lot of, um, you know, the U.S. ambassadors, they, they stay in Beverly Hills. The prime minister lives in Beverly Hills, <laughs> you know, so the, the very established neighborhoods. And so my mom and my dad, they will drive us up there and they'll say, well, one day this is going to be you. And I think that was what really motivated me to really try hard in school as well. Because wow. I wanted to get out of that, well, get yeah. out of um, the working class. You had good parents. I mean, they, they weren't letting you set your sights low. No, not at all. But that's also that's also kind of a lot of pressure to put on a kid, like like showing them a mansion and being like, "This is gonna." I guess that's <laughs> it's aspirational, though, right? It's it's. Uh... I know. Yes, it was, which is why it took me a while to actually embrace being a writer because you know I went to college and my only goal was to be a, a doctor. 
thinking that that was what was going to get me on that hill. Right. Well, it's funny that you say that because my dad, who was the first person in his family to go to college, uh, he as well was sort of nudged by his parents to be a doctor. That's sort of like what I think working class or immigrant families like they kind of tell their their kids, like, you got to be a doctor. That's the way to go. Exactly. Exactly. And, so that was the pressure. Well, and never mind the fact that my dad like uh, vomits at the sight of blood. Oh, <laughs> right. I do not. I do not like blood. Yeah. And so for me, it was trauma. Like you know, dissecting anything in biology class, it was it was horrible. So yeah, you didn't like it. So it's kind of similar to Tandy in your book, the character where um, you know you were sort of uh, marked as somebody with a bright future, somebody with the ability to transcend um, her station. Exactly. I'm curious to know, like, did your family, I mean, it sounds like your parents were sort of, um, you know, uh, helping you see that there were more than, uh, you know, a narrow set of possibilities for you. But once you got into this school, did you feel um, an additional pressure from them? Or did you, you know, whether or not they explicitly put it on you or whether or not you kind of invented it, you know, for yourself, did you feel like, do you feel a sense of responsibility? Like, I've got to be the one who's going to lift us up. Yeah, I did. I did. Because one, what happened is that this school was very competitive in terms of academics. And, you know, I was going to school with these people who were also told that they were going to be doctors and lawyers in their family. And, you know, every day for me coming home, it was like, oh, Nikki, you know, I was excused from, you know, the, the ordinary little things like cooking, for example. I didn't learn how to cook until college. Because, you know, because in the evenings, the expectation was that I'll, I'll be studying, you know, I'll be doing something pertaining to school, for example, because that was how much they really wanted this to happen. You did, know, so did, I couldn't did, disappoint did, them. Did you want it? I, um, you know, I thought I did. You know, I actually thought I did until graduation, until, until um, college graduation. You know, that was when I really realized that this is not something I wanted. But up until senior year in college, I thought I did. Did you ever resent it? I mean, regardless of, uh, I mean, even even the medicines, the, the medical pursuits aside, did you ever resent the pressure put on you? Did you ever want a simpler life? Or did you always say to yourself, like, you know, I'm on my way somewhere and this is this is my means of getting there? Yeah, I actually ended up resenting it looking back because, um, you know, I went to Cornell and I felt like I... Had I had the freedom to major in, in in English or creative writing, I think I would have taken more advantage, you know, of those courses, of those, you know, professors who were there, you know, because after walking away from that, I, I realized, wow, I was actually one of the best schools for that yeah. as well. I, I thought I went there for medicine, which is also great, but I really, really wanted to be an English major with a creative writing uh, minor. You know, and I felt like, wow, you know, I could have done that. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about because, um, you know, there's a part of me that uh, now that I'm in the weeds on this as a writer and it's a very difficult field, you know, there's a part of me that can look back with the benefit of hindsight and say, God, you know, there, there are other more practical uh, approaches to education. There are things I could have pursued that would have been uh, a little bit easier. But, you know, it, Maybe if you if you have the writing bug or maybe if, you know, your interests are what they are, there's no point in denying them. You know what I'm saying? Like, as I'm a parent now, and so I'm trying to think of how I might advise my child. Like, what if my daughter comes home and says she wants to be a writer? I guess I just have I guess I just have to support her. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, because one thing, you know, uh, children, I think, you know, looking at parents and seeing how much they had struggled, you know, not wanting that to repeat itself. And I think that's where the pressure is, even if they didn't say it. 
you know, I could actually see that, well, they themselves had wanted something and maybe they're putting their dreams on us. And that, that's probably not the best thing. But at the same time, I think it's kind of implicit. Yeah, well, um, and there's also, I mean, you also uh, are dealing with class when it comes to interests. I mean, you know, the medical profession and, and the legal profession, um, you know, those are sort of linear pursuits with like, if, if you can get through the hoops, you can make a, a good living, at least, histori- right. at least historically, you've been able to do that. So, um, you know, if you're somebody who comes from a working class background and you seem to, and you have a shot at this, that's, right. that's like the safest route. And I feel like maybe pursuing the arts is something that is considered frivolous or too risky. And I think it's, exactly. kind, of, it's kind of reserved for the privileged. I mean, that's something that goes... Um, too often unspoken when talking about um, literature or visual art or any or filmmaking or any of these things that um, you know so many people want to do. Right. But it, it seems like people... in undergrad, I was actually surrounded with that too. Yeah. Oh, pardon. Yeah, I was surrounded by other um, immigrants who were coming here for the first time. You know, they were first generation and also first generation college students who were coming. And um, I, they, all of us were encouraging each other to like push forward, study harder. Right. Because in our in our minds, this is what's going to get us to the next level. This is going to help us to climb this ladder to get this this whole proverbial American dream. You know, and so that was what we stuck to. And then what made, what made you flip? I mean, at some point you just couldn't deny the fact that you were into books. You had to you just had to start. Yes. You had to start writing. So what was it? What was like? Did you try medicine? Right. So I ended up going to um to University of Michigan to do my master's in public health. Right. Thinking that, oh, well, that's another step. You know, I might not have gone to medical school, but I was going to surely get into um, public health administration, public health research. So that's exactly what I did. I went into public health research and I again, I walked away thinking this I'm going to have a career still. It's not medicine, but it's something parallel in the public health. And so I did HIV research, but I was coming home and I was writing all the time. I was um, still reading. I was writing. I was writing until midnight. And it didn't really occur to me to even apply to an MFA program or anything until I met my, my wife, you know, who was then my girlfriend. And she said to me, you know, are you a researcher or a writer? Because it seems as if you're more passionate about writing. And so she actually made me really think about what I wanted out of life. And then you, and and then you applied to the MFA. Right, exactly. Where'd you go? I went to Sarah Lawrence College okay. and it was a really great um, experience because, you know, I had the chance to be surrounded by people who that's what they, they do. Right. And I had never been experienced. I had never experienced that before. So that was really eye opening for me. Well, yeah, it makes it real. You know, it's a it makes exactly. it ta- tangible. Otherwise, I mean, I've heard people talk about their early experiences with books and not not even believing that an actual human being could do that, you know, like that they, right. they seem to come from some other like other world or something. Exactly. And then to be surrounded by people who you can talk to about your characters, like they're real people and they respond like, oh, yeah, you know, and it's not weird or anything. You could actually, actually talk about plot. And this was just something that I actually had wished I'd known earlier. However, I do feel like my my past experiences you know, I don't, I'm not sure if I would have been the right time today if I didn't have that past experience in public health. Well, there's also so. there's I mean, it's it's that I'm sure you probably accrued all sorts of experiences in uh, in your work life, you know, just people you met and things you experienced and learned about. But it's also um, I think that working a job that you don't have passion for when you know you're in the wrong field and you know what the right field is for you, that's a strong motivator. You know, yes. there's something to be said for having a, a job you hate. 
that will exactly. that will have you up until midnight or up at the crack of dawn working on your book because you're trying to write your way out of it. Right. And, you know, that's the thing, too, because I really the, the, the thing I loved about that job was meeting people. You know, I was doing I was interviewing all these men um, in New York City who are HIV positive. And I really enjoyed that component of it. And that was all I enjoyed. However, yes, the writing part. You should was... you should do a podcast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? That would have been great. Yeah. Um, you know, to give them a voice because a lot of them, you know, they're still invisible. They're still marginalized to some extent, not as much as in the 80s, but now still. And um, I really had great connections there. In fact, some of them today are, are still my friends. But at the same time, I felt like, wow, I really wanted to get out of that. So when I started looking at MFA programs, I would hear directors address these um all of us in the room saying, well, you know, you guys, you're going to end up going back to your normal jobs after graduation. Um, so don't look at this as anything. And I was so terrified when I heard that. I was like, no, there's no way that I'm going to apply, spend money for an MFA program to go back to where I was. Yeah, I was gonna... So that actually made me push even further. What do you mean? Well. What do you I mean? Pushed for, well, graduation, you know, I was not going to settle for going back into public health. I right. wanted to either teach writing while I'm writing you know, or just do pure writing because I did not want to do anything else but that. Yeah. And for me, teaching writing is like, you know, living the dream of a writer because I still I love teaching writing as well. So I knew after the MFA program, I was going to teach writing and work on my novel. You know, I wasn't going to go back to square one. And then in the novel, I was more aggressive in in, the, in the, being more disciplined, actually, and then being aggressive in finding agents and all these things because I, I felt like I did not want to end up back in that ocean, you know, writers. Right. Right. Well, that, that's great. I mean, and, and it sounds like you made relatively rapid progress once you got to Sarah and Lawrence. Yes. I mean, like, like in terms of your apprenticeship as a writer, like, you know, we all have to sort of suck for a while, you know, like you have to, be, right. you have to be willing to be bad, but I think certain people um, are bad for longer and other people are ba bad for a shorter amount of time. I, I know. I, I do have work that I'm not proud of, though. You know, there work that, that I, there were actually short stories I wrote um, at Sierra Lawrence, and I'm like, oh my gosh, thank goodness no one published that. You know, but sure. yes. But I mean, like when you got out, like what did you have done? What was your thesis or whatever? Did, was it a draft of this novel or was it something different? It was something different. My thesis was a first novel, which still no one has seen that. And um, in fact, I, I found an agent for that first novel and it didn't work out too well, um, you know, in terms of our creative um, differences. And so that one is now hidden under the bed. And so Here Comes the Sun, um, literally, I started writing that while in the MFA program, but I did not workshop it there and then continued on. And that was a book that became, you know, the, the book okay. the first in and, people's eyes. And where was it born? I mean, it was it was actually born in Jamaica. So I visited in 2010 and I, I actually started thinking about all these things that we, we spoke about earlier in, in the interview, you know, me going back and then getting, um, visiting my high school again and sitting there with those thoughts and feelings I sat with as a high school girl, you know, um, being working class and then, you know, um, just feeling isolated. And so Tandy came out of that, you know, because I also did a lot of journaling and in that journaling, I realized that I was actually writing. I thought I was writing my, uh, just, you know, normal thoughts, but it became a draft of Here Comes the Sun. And like, how often do you get back there? Um, once a year. Oh, once a year. Okay. That's, I thought that's more than I thought. So you go back once a year and 
um, you know, like a lot of what the book does is sort of peel back, um, you know, the, the common perceptions of Jamaica and places like it, you know, because everyone kind of sees Jamaica or most, uh, most Americans anyway, and, and people in the West would see, think of Jamaica and they see it as like a vacation island, a place, a, right. you know, a place to go get, um, stoned on the beach or whatever. And, um, you know, your book is not about that at all. It's about the people, uh, in the working class who live there and struggle against a lot of the things that we spoke about earlier. Um, right. And, you know, when you, and, and then the, the other thing about it is that, uh, you know, there's also, uh, issues that are raised in the book that I wasn't necessarily aware of with regard to Jamaica, um, in terms of the, uh, homophobia in terms of the, um, I guess it's called complexionism. I didn't know right. that there was an official word for this, but, um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, there is, there's a hierarchy of uh, skin color in Jamaica. Right. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because, okay, well, when I actually returned in 2010, I hadn't been back home five year for five years prior to that. You know, I was really, I put my, I was in a self-imposed exile because I did not want to go back to face all those things. Right. So when I went back eventually in 2010, only because my wife had said to me, you know, I want to get to know more about you and your culture and your country. So I took her there. And when we went there, we could not stay with my family because of course we were together. And so I had to stay in a hotel. Your family didn't approve? No. Okay. No. So instead of staying with them at my family home, I had to to stay in a hotel with with my um, wife. And that was when I became even more aware of that, um, kind of this performance. Because, you know, yes, here I was, I'm, I'm Jamaican. My wife is American. And, you know, I knew for a fact that they were performing. And something was sad about that. And again, in terms of memory, remembering driving down the coast and remembering all the displacements that were going on as the hotel industry boomed. And, you know, a lot of people wanted jobs in the industry. And so as a working class individual, I kind of get to see how people really, this is something that, that this is their livelihood. And I was really impassioned, impassioned about writing about this. Who are these people behind the fantasy? And I wanted them, I wanted their voices to be heard in that sense. And also in terms of the LGBT component, yes, me staying there was a result of me being gay and not being able to stay in my family home. You know, so I wanted to tackle that as well in terms of the, the cultural perception or the cultural norms surrounding homophobia. You know, because even, you know, people might not be chasing us with, with machetes or anything like that, but there is this stigma attached to it where you could lose your job, you know, you could actually, you know, lose friends, you know, all these things that we have to think about. And, you know, um, in terms of class, if you're a gay person living in the hills, like Beverly Hills, you know, no one really cares because you're hidden. You know, you could have your gay parties and no one would care. But in my in my um, class, in terms of working class, you are in a home a, a yard where your neighbors are highly aware of what you're doing. You know, and that's more that's putting you more at risk if you are a woman or a man who has suit who has clients or um, who has friends who are gay coming over or you know your spouse. And so that can be a problem, especially for for a man, because with with masculinity. You know, Jamaican masculinity is very complex, and that's something that. Why? Why, why is it? Why is that? Like, how so? Um, if it's threatened, you know, it, there's so much. That, especially homophobia. Homo, 
I feel like um, homosexuality really threatens this concept of masculinity in general, but in terms of Jamaicanness, there's that performance as well of Jamaicanness, right? So Jamaican men who are, you know, um, heterosexual, you know, tends to be very, very paranoid about any, any, any person, especially any male person who are not acting like them, right? They're, they're kind of like g- gender policing, you know? So for ma- from male gay man, from gay man, it's, it's even more riskier to display your sexuality than a lesbian woman. See, I yeah, but I see, I, I, I like my theory on this, and it's just a theory. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I, it, no, I just, I always feel like you know, there's the Kinsey scale, there's like the ten scale, you know, and if you're, <laughs> if you're a ten, you're really gay, and if you're a one, you're really hetero, right? And, and if you're a five, you're like right in the middle. And everyone sort of exists on that continuum, and so I think that when guys especially feel threatened by uh you know a gay man a really overtly gay man or somebody who's closer to a 10 than a 5 i think it's it's them being terrified of the fact that they're somewhere on that continuum exactly and, i i have always agreed with that yeah. you are so on point with that yeah there's just there's i mean you know everyone's a little bit gay everyone's a little bit straight somewhere in there <laughs> right you know i don't my know my goodness right and then some people just get paranoid you know yeah it, it freaks yeah. them out they get violent and it's just like i don't know i find it very sad but um, you know, that's tough. So you're dealing with a lot as you're growing up there. You're dealing with your sexuality. You're dealing with um, your class. You're also, de- I mean, yeah. I, I'm looking at your Skype picture and I've seen like press photos. Like you're not super light skinned, like, <laughs> but you're not like super dark skinned. So like, what did that, how did that affect you? Do you, did you feel that uh, growing up as well? Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing with, uh, with the complexionism now, that's another element, um, you know, because of course being dark skinned, you know, growing up in Jamaica, you know, seeing the the beauty queens and the, the we have the Miss Jamaica World and Miss Jamaica Universe and the girls who actually win those competitions to come and represent our country worldwide are you know these these girls who are mixed and lighter skin, right? So a girl who looks like me, you know, she would never be able to represent our country um, in terms of beauty and intellect. I mean, yes, she'll be rep- able to represent our country in track and field, as you have seen in the Olympics. But not beauty wise or intellectual wise. So yeah, that seems backwards to me. I think the, exactly. I, I think the most like the blackest, the darkest blackest people should be the ones who are, uh, you know, uh, held up as beauty queens like that. You know what I'm you saying? Know, I've always felt that way. In fact, um, there's a there's a modeling agency now in Jamaica called Saints Modeling Agency, and they have picked up that concept saying, you know what, we're going to send our darkest skin girls abroad, and they have been so successful doing that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it just seems like you're embracing it rather than trying to. Uh... And, you know, it actually, that, that's the mess growing up in Jamaica. Yeah, a lot of young girls wanted that message in Jamaica because we were we were told uh, via the media, especially when you see the host of the, um, you know, the hosts who are hosting the talk shows or the news and right. the, the people who are the flight attendants and who are the, at the front desk at the bank. You know, you are you're told implicitly that, no, this is, you, you don't belong here. You know, we don't want you in the at the front desk or at the front window or anything. You know, you're you're you, you should be in the back. And so that was what I grew up with. Did you ever try to well. Did you ever try to bleach your skin like uh like Tandy? I well in in high school, given that I was going to high school with these um girls who were called Bronins, right? These girls, you know, they they ate lunch by themselves. They were the popular girls. You know, there was a time when I thought about it and had even tried. There, there was this thing called naniola at the time. It's not as potent as any the bleaching creams that the girls are using now. 
you know, but I remember um, a friend of mine, she had brought it to school and we had both like put some on our skin and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, the effect, it actually dries your skin out, yeah. to be honest with you. And that was not something I was willing to walk around with, <laughs> you know, and also fearing the sun. You know, I didn't want that. I really did not think that could be my lifestyle, what? you know, to achieve certain things. Wait, so if you, if you uh, bleach your skin, you can't be in the sun? Right, you cannot be in the sun at all. Then you'd be like me. If I go out in the sun, I'm just, I'm a wreck. I'm a freckly white man. <laughs> right, that's a, you see, well, in, in our culture, you know, if you're already dark skin, you're told not to go in the sun, period, because it will make you darker. And that was something that was feared because, you know, of course, dark skin equals, you know, no opportunities at all. You know, it also equals unattractiveness. So even our great grandparents, our grandparents would tell us, no, you know, don't go in the sun, stay out of the sun, just play in the shade. So a lot of us end up fearing the sun, even if we're not bleaching. And I found that really, you know, right now, and as, as I said, even as I write the, wrote the book, I really found that sad because the sun to me is just beautiful. Yeah. And I, it feels good. I want to be able to go out in the sun more. You know, yes. I've got to put on sunscreen. <laughs> Sunscreen's all like greasy. It's a big pain in the ass. Uh, it just... I wind up not doing it as much as I should. Like I like to go to the beach and like be outside all day in the sun. I feel like I I can't do that very easily. Oh, you see that? And I'm, and I'm also opposite. Well, kind of opposite too, because I would go to the beach and I'd be like in the sun all day long. And people would say, Nicole, why are you in the sun so long? And I'll tell them, well, because growing up, I could never, I could never have done this, you know? So it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, no, it's great. I wish I could do that. Oh, uh, <laughs> I mean, right. probably for five, like, you know. Yeah, if I'm wearing, like, like, like SPF, I, SPF yeah, 120. Yeah, SPF sunscreen on, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I would I'd recommend it. So I, I want to talk to you as well because, you know, there's the white colonialism. There's a, there's a brutality to your book uh, that your book depicts that's really heartbreaking. And, you know, there's, obvious, there's, all, you know, there's a lot of obvious um, brutalities associated with the white colonialism and with, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, like – hotels like resort hotels going up and displacing working class populations and then uh just the brutality of like what working class people go through working at those resorts you know i think about uh the the maids who clean the rooms and right. um i was talking to somebody i was i was talking to uh somebody the other day about las vegas and just about what kind of filthiness goes on in las vegas on an average day and then thinking mm-hmm. thinking about the people who have to go in and clean those hotel rooms every day i mean like there's just all these jobs that like as a tourist or as somebody who's not in one of those jobs, it can be easy to sort of overlook. Right. And, uh, you know, so you, so you have that aspect of it. But, you know, a, a more surprising aspect um, or, or something that sort of took me aback was the brutality of working class people um, doing really cruel things to other working class people in kind of a dog eat dog environment because right. it's a survival environment. And, you know, you, you sort of would think, you know, if everybody, you know, if somebody is uh, put upon or um, oppressed that they're going to be, uh, you know, sympathetic to others in the same boat, but it's really not the case. A lot of the time you have people out there who are just fighting to survive. And if that means that somebody else has to suffer, then that's just the way it goes. You know, right. and that, that happens often. Exactly. It happens a lot. You know, even here, too, you know, um, you know, we call it the crab in the barrel because, you know, you, you notice even in crime, for example, you know, in certain neighborhoods, it's actually, you know, we, we, we have something called black and black crime as well. You know, and in, in Kingston, 
most of the people getting robbed are actually working class individuals. You're living in certain communities and they're being robbed by a neighbor, you know? So it's really, yeah, you had the perfect word for it, the dog eat, dog eat dog mentality, right? Or survival of the fittest, you know, what you have to really do to survive because it's, it's born out of desperation, desperation to survive. You know, so you have a character like Margot, for example, who, yes, she's working class, but here, here she's using these other girls who are working class as well, especially Gillette. And, you know, first it's, it's easy to it's easy to hate Margot because of that. But at the same time, you realize, well, she wasn't given given certain opportunities either. And so she's using what she knew. You know, that was her way of saying, well, if if I'm not given the ladder for upward mobility, then this is what I'm going to use. I'm going to step on my own to reach the top. Did you see this when you were growing up in Jamaica? I personally didn't see this happening in terms of um, in my immediate surroundings, but I've heard, you know, in terms, again, in terms of the violence, for example, you know, one of the things um, in, in our country, for example, is um, politics um, that used to be violent. I mean, it's not as violent as, as it once was back in the 80s and 90s, but I do remember, you know, these were, it was a division among working class individuals. You know, you had JLP versus PNP. And these were you. These were kids. These were young men who were killing each other. These are men who are in the same boat in terms of their working class impoverished status, who are killing each other because they were wearing the wrong colors to election. You know, they weren't going up on the hills and killing the wealthy. You know, but they were staying down in the in the, in the pressure cooked aisles of Kingston, just murdering each other. And so, to me, that meant that well, wow, they would do anything you know, to rise to the top, to, to survive, including killing their own brothers and sisters. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, it, and it's like, I think about this stuff, um, not only in the context of Jamaica, but in the, especially in the context of very small nations, you know, with uh, a finite amount of resources, you know, it's a, Jamaica's small, it's an island and you right. have, you have uh, a limited amount of opportunity. It's a tourism driven economy. And there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of strife. And so um, I, I think about it and I'll say to myself, well, I mean, obviously tourism's got to be a big component of the economy. It's a beautiful place. And that's a great, yes. that's a great resource. I mean, that's undeniably great. But, um, you know, what happens, and I think you're an example of this, is that, you know, people who are striving and want to uh, expand their field of opportunity leave the island. Yes. And then you have a working class that stays behind and probably works largely in the tourism biz in the tourism industry. And so the question becomes like how do you, how does uh, a country like Jamaica keep its best and brightest and then also how do you grow the field of opportunity? Like what's I wish I knew the solution. I you know, I'd be a genius if I could, but I mean um do you have any thoughts on that? Like is there is there something that's not happening that needs to be happening there to make things right. better? That's a really good question. You know, one of the things um, that I've always even thought about was the fact that, yes, tourism is our number one revenue, but next to that is um, is actually remittance. And, um, you know, a lot of us coming here to the United States or even to Canada or the UK, we're sending money um, back home. And that's helping to fuel the economy as well. You know, so, of course, our government sees that and they're like, well, you know, they're comfortable with that. 
you know, nobody's crying about the brain drain because they see the money coming in and that's all that matters, the barrels and the money. Do they get and, a, does the government get take a piece of that when it comes back in or does that just, just they, they like that it just flows back into the local economy? They just like that it flows back in the local economy. Okay. You know, perhaps it's taxed, you know, when, when our relatives receive it from Western Union, I'm not sure. But I, that's something that, that's really, that we need to talk about too because a lot of us, especially the creative ones, like the writers and the visual artists and the dancers are leaving the island for better opportunities here. You know, so, you know, what, and I love the question that you asked, what does that do to our culture in general? And so now I'm just, I'm actually as curious as you to know what, how will that, how would the, would the government help to retain those other people who are there who have the talent, you know, but don't see the opportunities there? Yeah. It's like, no. It's like it's like it almost like it seems it almost seems as if in order to have the variety of opportunity that a country would need in order to retain uh, its its you know most ambitious or brightest people it it needs to be like a a, a huge population like I'm wondering how you could create like a, a really dynamic uh, flourishing society with like a huge amount of varied opportunity. In a in a very in a, in a much smaller country, I'm sure it's possible. It just yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Like you kind of need your New York and your California, and then you have the Midwest, and then you have the Pacific Northwest. You have all these different regions. Jamaica's the size of what? You know, it's, it's the size oh, of Pennsylvania or something. A, yeah, right. You know, so right. It's you, very small. It's very small. And don't get me wrong. It's so like you know. I sometimes I go on Facebook. Well, I do go on Facebook to um, publicize my novel and all these things, right? But there are friends who I have or who are living great lives in Jamaica. You know, of course, these are friends. Yes, they live on the hills. And yes, they go on vacations every now and then. But, you know, again, the class, right? You have to be in a certain class to really enjoy Jamaica to the fullest. You know, posting pics on the beach every every Sunday. That's luxury right there. And so really, you can't really achieve that unless if you're, you're in certain careers or in a certain class. And um, what happens to another thing I didn't... Um, mentioned just now to people who feel like they're a little a little outside of that box of the quote-unquote Jamaicanness. so for example a, a lesbian or a gay person or even a bisexual person you know living in jamaica with or christian or strong christian sentiments it's kind of hard as well you know living an open life you know because yes you can have it all but then people get tired of hiding who they are you know people get tired of pretending so I feel like, you know, with a small island comes the small mind in that concept of sexuality and anything else that, that you know, that threatens, um, you know, differences. I mean, is it getting, is it, differences. Is, is it getting any better? Is it getting better? Like, like over the course of your life, have you felt it improve or is it? It's improving. You know, it's like crying open a lobster, I feel like. You know, because our older generation are still there. They're still heavy, resting on our on our hand. They're still there, you know. And so I guess when that generation moves out gracefully, I think Jamaica might change in that aspect of, of accepting differences. You know, because right now on the island, given that we're so young, you know, as, as I said, Jamaica is 54 years old. So a lot of the people who are in power now, and who are, are running the island are those people who they were like six years old when our country gained their independence. So you're talking about the baby boomers, you know, you call them baby boomers here in the United States. There, we don't know. I don't know what to call them, but they were there 
from the beginning and they have this this steady grasp on how they want the island to be you know especially the respectability factor and respectability is something that really silences the youths you know especially if we're if we're wearing our hair different if we talk different if we if we dare to use patois in public you know if we dare to express our love for same gender you know all these things that they're 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 holding on dearly you know, to Britain, you know, and enforcing her laws. I'm guessing when those people retire, I think our country will change. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the baby boomers have been in power forever. I know, I know. And they're living longer. So, you know, but I'm, I'm guessing probably when they're but 75, when our country hits the 75 mark and they're, you know, slowly but surely say, okay, guys, we give up now. <laughs> you know, I think, I think our generation, especially those living here, you know, we might come back down to Jamaica, celebrate and say, OK, all right, we, we're taking over the island now. No, see, I'm a gen, I'm, <laughs> I'm, gener, I'm Generation X, I guess. And I don't feel like anybody from right. my, no one from my generation is ever going to be the president. It's just going to be the it'll just be it'll go straight from the baby boomers to the millennials. That's what it feels like. I'm, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. I don't I don't I feel the same way. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. What, are you are you a Generation X or are you? What are I am. You, you are. OK. Solidarity. Exactly. Yes. So, um, yeah, 1980s baby. So, okay. So you come over to the state. Do you like living in the United States? Have you embraced it as your home? I have. It's pretty crazy. It's a little crazy, right? It's got its, it's got its, uh, faults. <laughs> I know it does. It definitely does have, have its faults, but you know, I've always seen it as that place where I came, to, you know, in during my college years saying, well, this is a place where I can finally find that freedom, you know, to be, to express my individuality you know, to claim my identity, you know, and so I really held that there. Is that what you did? Because like when you, in terms of coming out and in terms of like figuring out, um, you know, who you were uh, at the level of sexuality, was that something that happened once you got to the States or is that something that you had sort of confronted with yourself back when you were still in Jamaica? I confronted it in Jamaica, but I wasn't comfortable living with it in Jamaica. Um, So when I got here, and, you know, was away from my parents. That was when I was like, well, finally, I can explore it. And that's exactly what I did. And, you know, I never looked back since. And I felt like, again, if I, if, had I stayed back home, I felt like I could not have, you know, done this so easily. Yeah. Well, that, that's, a, that's, a horrible, uh, that's a horrible thing to have to uh, go through, to not be able to be yourself. That's no way to live. Yeah, you know? exactly. So I want to ask you about pot. Uh, okay. Because, you know, everybody commonly associates, I mean, you think of Jamaica, at least a, a certain person thinks of Jamaica, they think of marijuana. Right. Um, how, like when you were growing up, like in all these like American tourists are coming down there and smoking tons of weed. And I mean, did you see a lot of that? Were you annoyed by these people? There's got to be a name for the, that tourist. Do you guys have like a nickname for those people? You know, <laughs> it's so funny. I never was exposed to it growing up. You know, I in high school, you know, we did have those girls who were rebellious and they'll smoke it back in the, you know, whenever we had a fet or something. But those girls, we we never even regarded them as um, much because those are the weren't the girls who were going to college. You know, we looked down on it. And I never actually smoked um, anything until coming to college when I'm like, oh, let me try something. But it's, it's it's something that's not ingrained in our culture, given that we're we're much more Christian than Rastafarian. 
the Rastafarians were the more shunned ones. But it's so ironic that their culture is what, you know, um, a lot of tourists picked upon in terms of the weed smoking and even them um, talking about Bob Marley all the time, who was also Rastafarian. And in our household, Bob Marley was not played. Oh, really? You know, he was not, it was not played at all, you know, because of the, the kind of music. And um, it's so interesting that after I left the island, that was when I started listening to Bob Marley. That was when I realized that he was actually the voice of the working class, you know, but of course he was, he was, he was always associated with weed um, because of course the, the Rastas, that's their um, religious um, thing. That's but their sacrament. Right, right. But as a culture, we never embraced it. No, because of tourism, they're embracing it to capitalize off it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I, that's funny. You know, you had to leave Jamaica to smoke weed. <laughs> right. I know. It, there was a stigma attached. And only certain, I'm telling you, in high school, only certain girls with certain boyfriends um, did that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, and, and it's not something that's really prevalent. Because is it legal? It's legal there or no? Um, it's not legal. I don't think it's legal there. Okay. I know the hotel I stayed at, um, there was, I stayed at a resort once. And, um, of course, they had the guy come and sell to the tourists. And, you know, it was hush-hush. But I don't, I doubt it's legal. Okay. So people, you can't just, like, walk around with a joint? I don't think so. But there, um, I think Sunfest, there's a party, there's a reggae festival now, Sunfest, where there is open, you can actually openly smoke it. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so, and then you talk about religion. You talk about Christianity. Um, Definitely. What's the, you know, we, what's the Christianity, de- right. We're, we're a British colony. <laughs> so what's the denomination? Like, what is uh, it? Mostly, mostly Anglican. Okay. Mostly Anglican. Um, then you have the Church of God people and then some Catholic, you know, and then Pentecostal, you know, lots of Pentecostal. That's the, you know, almost fundamentalist Christian. That's like speaking in tongues. There as well. Exactly. Do you have exactly. so you have that and that, that's that's and that's very pervasive not I mean all of it together like that that is the majority of people are either you know Anglican or Church of God or Pentecostal or right. you know, all of the above something like that yeah wow okay. exactly yeah and whew, that's um you know because of religion a lot of things we that's why we can't really express much I was going to say is that is that is that the primary driver of homophobia do you think is the religion yes Definitely. It's religion. You know, the, the minute you step outside of uh, what's expected of a man and a woman, you know, you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, you, know, you hear all these things, you know, and so people are just like walking straight lines in fear, you know, of that. So where are you on religion now? Are you done? I'm done on religion. I'm more of a spiritual person. Okay. What does that mean? Yeah. Means that, you know, I, I do believe that there is an external force. I do believe that, you know, that some there's something bigger than us and greater than us. But I would not, in terms of the um, rituals, you know, there, that's something I'm step, I, I've stepped away from. And the dogma. Right. Yeah. I mean, how could you stay, right? I mean, it would be like at odds. It's like, I've always, I don't, I don't understand how anybody, I mean, I'm sure it happens. But it's like, if you're a gay person and then you're also Catholic... Oh my gosh. How do you, I mean, how do you reconcile this though? I mean, if you're a woman and you're Catholic, you know what I mean? Like I know people do it and I know they have their good reasons, but it's like, right. you, you do realize that they are treating you like either a second class citizen or worse, right? <laughs> like, right. I could not, you know, even the church that my, my, my parents go to, you know, the women have to cover their heads and wear long skirts. And I, 
honestly, I, I respect whoever who who respects who that's the, that's them. But for somebody else, you know, don't impose it on others. And that's something that, that I'm terribly um, this whole concept of coming into somebody else's space and saying, oh, you have to wear this, you know, or you have to be this way, you know. And that was something I did not like. And so, you know, in terms of on the island, a lot of people, you know, when they when they're baptized, you know, they, they, they walk around as this um, changed person because now they're Christian. So let's say you, you're best friends with somebody tomorrow and, you know, today they, they got baptized and then you're playing your, your song that you always play together as friends. No, they can't listen to that song because they're like, oh, you know, no, I'm baptized. So, you know, turn that music down. And you're like, who are you? You know, and that, that was the kind of Christianity that I, I grew up with. People literally changed on you. And it's okay. So at what age did you start to, to move away from it? Um, at what age? Actually, it, it took me a while because even in my, in my freshman year of college, I was still going to church. And at, at that, I actually went to Easter Sunday. Um, you know, the Easter Sunday had the big um, sermon. So I went to church on Easter Sunday. But then eventually I just, it just faded. I just started saying to myself, I don't have to be here, you know, to to be worthy. I don't have to be here. And, you know, because I felt like even at the time, the, the, what the, per, the pastor was preaching at the time, it was actually against homosexuality. <laughs> and there I was sitting in the, in the pews and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, what is this? You know, I can't traumatize, I can't, I can't you know, do this to myself anymore. So I just left. What is it? I, it's like, it's like, I, I guess it's like control. That's what these, uh, I'm like, why do they? Why do they care? It never it bothers right. my mind. They must want to control their flock, right? If you can con- right. control people sexually, then they can. I don't know. Exactly, and you know that's why the character of Miss Gracie in my novel came out because Miss Gracie represents a lot of Pentecostal women walking around, you know, mumbling, "Oh, the blood of Jesus." So when she put the cross on Birdie Moore's um, house, you know, marking her because you know, of course, Birdie is a suspected lesbian in the community. You know, so, you know, the slaughtering of the dead dogs on her lawn and all these things. Those are the things that, you know, I grew up hearing about. I grew up seeing. And so Miss Gracie was representative of that. Wow. No wonder you went to Cornell. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like I, they're going to I don't want murdered dogs in my lawn if I can avoid it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, yes, that was like extreme. But <laughs> so. Yeah. So what about your book in Jamaica? Like are people reading it down there? Well, I mean, obviously your family's read it. Like, but what's the reception been down there? Has it been published in, in is it in bookstores and whatnot or? Yes, yeah, so far the reception has been great. Um, I read at Calabash Literary Festival um, back in June, and people loved it there. Um, I just got UK rights, so of course it's going to be able to. They're going to be able to sell it there. However, people have been getting it um, through Amazon, you know, and um, they're, or they've been coming here and buying it and returning back to the island, and they're enjoying it there. And let me knock on hardwood, but so so far so good. You know, I think people are connecting to different things in the novel. You know, because, of course, it touches on the classism, the complexionism, the homophobia, um, to some extent, the religiosity. But mostly it's the identity and the, um, the displacement that they're also connecting to as well. And, you know, this concept of acceptance. Well, and it's also giving voice uh, to um, a class of people who don't normally appear in the pages of literature, you know, or don't, right. not often enough. And that's... That's a that's a, a great thing to have done, I think. 
Yeah, you know, using these three female protagonists, these three female working class women, you know, because that's the thing, you know, I've never seen that written on the page, especially in Caribbean literature, well, you know, and I feel like coming from that class, being female myself, I wanted to put it out there. I wanted these women to exist and not be caricatures. And that's why it was important, important for me to create Margot Tandy, Dolores, and also Verdine as well. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's an easy thing for me to take for granted is the, the idea of uh, representation in art, you know, in film and in, in literature. Uh, there's obviously no shortage of white men in those things in, right. case, in, ca- in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> right, yes. But to not see oneself, you know, or to barely see oneself um, that has kind of a, uh, that's got to have a, a, a feeling of erasure attached to it or a feeling of, um, ghostliness, you know, not existing. Yeah. And so to, to put that on the page is to make those people more fully exist. And, uh, right. that's a very noble thing to do. Yeah. Thank you. So when you, uh, when you go back home, I mean, what do your folks, your folks read this? They I mean, they must be proud of you. Right. But they must also, it's also, I think it can be difficult for parents to read, um, the books of their children, especially if the books deal with difficult subject matter, you know, is that the case with you? Yes. Um, my mother at first, you know, she had a hard time, um, especially hearing that the main protagonist, Margot, you know, is a, a lesbian woman. Um, however, she got over that really quickly because she read my book. She literally sat and read my book in a week. And she loved it. You know, she called me saying, that, oh, my gosh, she was talking to me about all the things that's happening in the book. And I'm like, mommy, you need to find a book club or something because she was so excited about what she read. And also saying it's great to even document the lives of these working class Jamaican women. You know, so she saw that. And um, I was really proud of myself when and also proud of her for coming for taking that step. And also to another thing, um, the way how I, I represented Jamaica, because for her, it was that fear. Oh, you know, tourism is our number one revenue. And this book is is writing the other side of paradise. And so at first she was concerned, but then she realizes, well, this is even deeper than that. This is actually showing the real issues that's going on on the island, you know, without um, this whole concept of maiming what um, anybody for the just for the purposes of having visitors come. You know, because I wanted everybody to be able to read this book, not just Jamaicans, but anyone who is going on the, the island. Let's say, you know, there's a tourist who's coming on the island just to smoke weed. For example, that would be they, that would be me. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, that person could read the book and say, "Wait, you know, there's more to this country than just the beach and the weed and the the hotel. Let me step outside and explore." I mean, of course, yes, having somebody who's Jamaican there with you, but exploring our our people, exploring our culture even more in depth, you know, than just that part, that small part of the resort. So yeah, like that, what would you recommend? I mean, because that brings up an interesting question. You know, it's like, it's easy to say to somebody coming in from uh, the States or whatever to say, hey, you know, leave the resort, go out. Like, wh- where do you go? Do you go into Kingston yeah. and start shaking hands? You know, like what? Well, yeah. All right. Yeah. So I would recommend, I would recommend like going into Kingston or going into the city part of the town. So if you're in Montego Bay, you know, you go into St. James or you, in, in Kingston, I'd say probably take a, a Juta tour bus to Kingston where there are performance arts, you know, or national galleries there. So you could get exposed to all our great artists, the ones who some of most of them are on the island. Some of them actually end up migrating um, for the reasons that we spoke about earlier. And then there is our, our public our library, which is great as well. Tom Rickham. There's also our plays. 
you know, we're such a, a rich culture. So, of course, Kingston houses all of that. You know, so I think a nice little tour into Kingston, maybe stay overnight at one of the Kingston hotels, you know, and then maybe um, treat yourself to a nice dub um, concert or something where, of course, you could probably smoke your weed in the hill, <laughs> you know, and listen to some good reggae music while you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> by yeah. real artists, by real reggae artists who live on the island, you know, with great sounds. You know, there's Protege who is coming up now. He's great. And I know he performs a lot on the island. So, you know, there's so many things, I feel like, in our city because that's, you know, that's our heart. And what's the best beach? Like, where, like what, what's the beach that only the locals know about? That uh... <laughs> In my opinion, the best beach is actually, I love Frenchman Cove because I, you know, that's, you just go, it's in Portland, though. You know, so it's, a, it's quite a, like a drive. It's not that far from Kingston, but you're there and you're just by yourself for the most part because it's not that crowded. You know, you just enjoy the peace of it. Yeah. That's, that's what you want, you know? Yes. I speak to you from Los Angeles where, like, you go to the beach in the summer and there's, like, 60,000 people. I know. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> that's nightmare. Right. Exactly. I don't know why anybody does that. Yes. Yeah, uh, perfect to cool down, but still, sometimes you just need a little, you know. It's too many. Piece. There should not be that many people in the ocean. That's my, it's yeah. just, it's too much. It, it, oh, I, you're the same way too? I'm the same way, yeah. yeah. I feel like bad things are happening when that many people are going in the ocean. But Right, oh, uh, gosh. <laughs> Uh, oh my goodness. So are you working on anything else? You got another book in the works? What's next for you? I am. I'm actually working on my second novel. And my second novel is actually set here in the States, in New York, and also in Jamaica. So giving readers, you know, the best of both worlds in the second one, the second one. What's that? Can you tell us what, you know, what it's about? Just like a little... Oh, I can't right now, but just to let you know, it's, it's set here as well. Yeah. In, in New York? In New York. How far along are you? I'm actually, um, the first draft is done, so I'm just really reworking, like doing the revision process, which is still tedious, but yeah. it's getting there. Okay. And you're teaching? I'm also, well, I'm not teaching this semester because I'm touring. Oh, right. I'm traveling a lot this semester. Well, yeah. Where are you going? Uh, but, but the, the, oh, the, my the, gosh. The, the Decatur. <laughs> I'll be at Decatur next year, next week. Where? Decatur, Georgia? De Decatur, Georgia. Then there's Miami, Texas. Um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Pennsylvania, DC. Wow. So I'm going to like I'm city hopping a little bit this this semester. It's hard. It's hard to be a celebrity author. You oh, travel all over the place. Oh my gosh, this is, I could not have asked for anything better. But I'm I'm really you know enjoying this whole journey. You know because realizing that wow, you know this doesn't happen to a lot of debut um, authors. I heard. So I guess I'm just gonna revel in this and then. Get back to, it's good to the hear. serious business. No, it's good to hear you say that. I think I think authors too often fail to uh, enjoy that part of it, you know, or yeah. they get uh, tangled up about it. But it's like, you know, you how many times in your life do you publish a book and then somebody's nice enough to do that and then they're nice enough to um, send you on tour or there are people... Exactly! I mean, just enjoy it, for God's sake. Right, or nice enough to interview you and, you know, put you on something, yeah. you know, some article. But yeah, so that's why I'm just in awe at this point i'm still in awe you know so it's a dream come true yes all right definitely well i'm uh i'm very pleased that we got to spotlight the book in the uh, book club and i've really enjoyed talking with you i wish you luck here. i wish you luck on tour are you going to write while you're on tour are you like I definitely guess, so you're doing you do both you write in the yes you can do both you don't have to have like a cloistered life like you can write in hotels and on airplanes and stuff i in fact that's mostly where my writing stick plays 
okay. know, while I'm traveling. Yeah, mostly in my study, but I can write anywhere. So, yeah, I'll be doing my little edits on the plane. Wow. Well, I wish you luck with it. I thank you for the time. Thank and you. Uh, be interested to see what you, what, you, what you come up with next. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That's Nicole Dennis Ben. Her novel is called Here Comes the Sun, available now from Live Right. It is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Nicole online at NicoleDennisBen.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at NDennis underscore Ben. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget, this podcast has a free app. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go to the app store of your choosing. Search for Other People with Brad Listy. You'll find the app. It's free. Get that app on your device. Best way to listen. If you want to uh, get at the full archives, you can sign up for a premium subscription. It's 75 cents a month. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. You get the most recent 50 free of charge. But if you want to go deeper than that, you sign up for a premium at 75 cents a month. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. So yeah, I, I get into a uh, rhythm with writing. I have to. That's the way. I, that's only the only way that I can really do it. Is to kind of get into sort of a uh, completely immersive daily rhythm, like a fierce discipline. Can't just be sometimes. Please remember that uh, Vladimir Novikov called Thomas Mann a quack and that John Steinbeck said that time is the only critic without ambition. That's all for now. Thanks again to Nicole, Dennis, Ben. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, I will be back before too long, in a week, I think. This new studio. I'm, I'm like two weeks away from getting back on a solid ground, I think. Maybe maybe three. You know, I'm getting close. I got to stop talking about it. I, I'm going to jinx it. But soon. We'll talk to you soon.